Good evening, everyone. Congratulations, making it through the first day. It uh, clearly is not for the faint of heart, this practice. It takes a lot of courage to stay with it. Anyone have a body that didn't feel so hot today? A few hands. Anyone have some range of moods and emotions? Any, any motor of thinking? Any persistent, uninvited thoughts? So um, I was thinking as I was sitting with you, believe it or not, I actually make stuff up while I, while I sit here. I don't just, I'm not just completely silent, not just mingling with the divine. I sometimes have thoughts. But I was thinking about a story that... I can't give you the exact details of the story, but it keeps coming into my mind and, uh, and impressing me with the paradox of our practice, with some of the, and the central themes of our practice of, of staying right where we are. Uh, that that is really the key to the awakening of our, of our consciousness, the, the liberation of our hearts the freeing of our hearts from confusion. And in this story, there is a, uh, and there are many magical stories in the teachings of the Buddha, but they, they reflect something that I think are something that's important for us to understand. In this story, there is a celestial being, a, a deva, who comes to talk to the Buddha and talks about it himself in his, uh, in a, or someone else, either himself or someone else in a previous lifetime. And so that whole view, which you do not have to adopt about lifetimes and rebirth, that's not necessary uh, in order to, for your heart to be free. But that is part of the, the cultural heritage of some of the teachings. And uh, so you hear a lot about this in the stories. So in this story, this one being was uh, he was uh, a, a deva or a celestial being and he had this special power. He could walk long distances with, um, with great speed and very little effort. And he had it in his mind that he was going to walk to the end of the world. And he walked for, for 50 or 100 years and then he died. And he didn't reach the end of the world. And I guess he was then uh, reborn or somebody went to the Buddha and told the story about this fellow who tried to walk to the end of the world and he just finally shriveled up and died. And then asked the Buddha, well, is it possible to come to the end of the world by going. Can you go to the end of the world? And the Buddha responded, it is not possible 
to reach the end of the world by going. But only those who reach the end of the world become liberated. What do you do with that? That's what I'd like to talk about tonight. Because he didn't stop with, this, with his answer. He went on to, to say that it is within, I'll use his words, at least as they've been translated, within this very fathom-long body. And they use that kind of nautical measurement, I guess, at the, some of the old suttas or teachings. Within this very fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense, in other words, senses and perceptions, Within this fathom-long body lies the world. Within this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the cause of the world. Lies the cessation of the world, and lies the path that leads to the cessation of the world, or the end of the world. So in this passage... There's many different ways to read it, but the pointing is to the fact that everything that one needs to reach the end of the world exists within this fathom-long body. And this is, in one way, why the first foundation of mindful attention, the first thing that we pay attention to, the first thing that the Buddha recommended that we study and experiment with, pay attention to, is uh, mindfulness of the body. In fact, he was so, he was so um, passionate about this, the importance of mindfulness of the body, this is what he said, and he was, in this conversation, he was speaking to monastics and for the purpose of this conversation, you are monks. One thing, O oh monks, if, gen- if developed and cultivated, leads to a strong sense of urgency, to great benefit, to great security from bondage, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. I'll keep going. If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, Body is calmed. Mind is calmed. Discursive thoughts are quieted and all the wholesome states that partake of awakening reach the fullness of development. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, ignorance is abandoned. Supreme knowledge arises. 
delusion of self is given up. The underlying tendencies are eliminated. The fetters, the things that bind us are discarded. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. So perhaps your day today of creaky bones and aching muscles and busy mind and all these moods, perhaps you understood from this why you want why you want to why you might want to go why you might you want to why you might want to go someplace else to find the end of end of suffering to find relief to find the as it's sometimes called the sure heart's release to find liberation of course we love ourselves No one wants to feel creaky bones. No one wants to have painful sensations and heartaches, unwanted thoughts. No one wants the the constant barrage of, of, um, of unstoppable experience. We sometimes want it to just quiet down. But yet it presents itself and we experience what may have felt like a difficult day, but we actually are experiencing insight into what the Buddha called the first noble truth. There is, if you are born, there will arise, there just inherently is, those things, if you're born, that are difficult to bear. That's just, that's the first noble truth. That if you are born, I like to think of it as, if you're born, being born is the leading cause of sickness, aging, dying, death, sometimes not getting what you want, sometimes not wanting what you get, being separated, from things that you love, people that you love, basically losing everything. It's not easy. And we experience that, even if you you can look at it philosophically and know that that's true. But what we experience, the truth of that, moment by moment, in simple ways of having, I'm sure there, how many, how many of you had five, a hundred unsatisfying moments today? Five hundred. So a, a big percentage. Moments that you wanted things to be other than the way they are. This is a, a very innocent response to feeling of some, some measure of distress. So within this fathom-long body lies the world. So without this body, you don't know any of this experience. So everything you experience here, your whole experience of life and all of your reactions 
All of your plans, all your memories, everything about your life depends on this body. And if we can learn, if any of us can learn to navigate being embodied, learn to live in this body wisely, lovingly, humorously, with its perceptions and inner sense. And I say humorously because we're constantly making stuff up about the world. And the whole of our life really with this amazing body is basically six experiences happening over and over again. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling things in our seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling things, sensations, and thinking. Five physical senses, physical doors of perception, and one mental. They're considered senses, the six sense doors. And those experiences, the whole of our life is those experiences unfolding one after another. So how we experience our life, how dramatic it seems, is really in some way an elaboration, a story that we tell ourselves about those simple experiences. One of the main stories that we tell ourselves is that, um, is that we're going somewhere, is that we can reach somewhere. And it's so easy to miss the fact that not one of us, no one in this room, no being ever at any time ever, has left the present moment. Has, there has only always been a present, you could say. And even that word is a little... But there's only been where you are right now. So even the thought that you had, that seed thought that arose in a present moment, I'm disconnected from myself. I need to go to a retreat. Or I'm, I'm hungry for, for um, thirsty for insight, knowledge. I feel so much compassion for the world that I want to find a way of living uh, in balance with it and being in, of benefit in this world. That seed thought took place in a present moment. And every single thing that you did to actualize your being here took place in the present moment, in an unfolding present. But our mind spends a lot of time constructing a past where we've come from a present that we're passing through and a future that we're going toward. Making it seem like we are on a kind of linear, like we're on a kind of a pathway. Not realizing that 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 path, that there really is no path to where we're going. The path surrounds us literally in every instant. 
So the Buddha said that in that passage, within this fathom long body lies the world, lies the cause of the world, lies the cessation of the world, lies the path leading to the cessation of the world. Saying everything you need to know about your um, path of awakening happens right where you sit. So you may even notice while you're listening to this talk the view that you will be you'll be happier when we reach the end of this talk or when you can learn something from it. Mind has this way of, of looking, I call it the obsession with what's next. And why do we constantly do that? Why do we constantly want to go? Why do we constantly want to create that imagined future that never arrives and miss the fact that time is always now, right where we're sitting. What is it that, that compels us to continually go out of ourselves into our imagination in search of a better place? The end of the rainbow. Liberation even. If we go back to this passage, it says within this fathom long body with its senses and perceptions lies the world. And then that second part lies the cause of the world. So you found the world today. You're a little bit more intimately than maybe you were with the world yesterday. Now usually we think of the world as as that picture of the globe and the geopolitical situation and the social this and every, you know, everything that's so wonderful that we can reflect on and respond to and all that. But we often in that process miss the world as we experience it directly. And so we know a lot about our world, but we don't know our world directly. Just like we don't know a lot, of, we know a lot about ourselves, but we don't know ourselves directly so well. So you experience the world today and you experience probably, how many of you had a lot of pleasant moments today? So it turns out that these six experiences that you had today, the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body with its senses, every, every experience that enters one of, that gets triggered that triggers one of these different doors of perception to fire. When you hear that, that sound, that requires a, it requires a sound and it requires a sense, a, what we call a sense base or an ear, in other words. When that gets triggered, every single time that gets triggered, that, that sound of that gong comes accompanied with a conditioned um, 
tone. A conditioned tone means some flavor of feeling arises with that, that uh, we experience as, in the case of that sound, that has arises from in my mind, at least in that moment, with a pleasant, it's a pleasant sound. It comes with what we call pleasant vedana, a pleasant valence. Now for some people, if you were to hear that sound all day long, it may at some point morph into, it may arise and have an unpleasant um, association with it. Does that seem a workable thought? You may not think that that's important. The fact that that arises with a pleasant valence. And then other times something arises, like someone rustling a lot in the hall, or coming in late and slamming the door or something, that it may arise in your mind as an unpleasant experience. Now for some people that may arise as a pleasant experience, just kind of wake you up and you're happy that somebody that you finally woke up out of your little dreamscape and thank you to the person who is making all kinds of noise. So, that, so I say that because everything isn't absolutely the same feeling tone for everyone. It's conditioned by your unique individual life and what we call karma, or conditions, um, habits. Or an experience comes and it's neither pleasant or unpleasant. So we experience with every single thing that touches this incredibly sensitive instrument called our body. It triggers some kind of feeling. And it turns out that something in our makeup, when a pleasant feeling something that arises with a pleasant feeling, there is a little charge that goes off in our mind that's called liking. And, or a little charge that goes off in our mind of not liking. Liking and not liking. And then when experiences that enter our different doors of perception that are neither pleasant or unpleasant, we tend to become oblivious. We tend to fall into delusion, not even notice. So liking, not liking, and ignoring or not noticing, if these are practiced over and over, these simple little reactions, they tend to, over time, and we're all conditioned beings, they harden into um, into into stronger reactions. The liking tends to start to be followed by, as a kind of sequence, liking, unrecognized, is followed by wanting. We tend to want more of it. And the unpleasant, we tend to, the not liking turns into, I don't like this. And those, the, the, not, the not wanting and the wanting harden into very strong mental reactions. Like anger, like strong craving, lust, um, greed. Uh, So a whole continuum of, of how these simple reactions 
to the feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, move into a very strong uh, life of reactivity. So the Buddha started his teaching by saying, pay attention to this body with its senses and its perceptions. The second foundation of mindfulness that he pointed to was these feeling tones. Pay attention to these feeling tones because it's in these feeling tones that we make the world, that we start building a world of our imagination. We build the world of reactivity. We start going, trying to go somewhere because we don't like what we're having or we want more of what we're having. Or we don't notice and then we just drift into into our into virtual reality. We get bored and just space out. So the invitation of our practice, even though it's hard, especially the first day, you see why we want to go, because there's so much unpleasantness, so many things that we have to accommodate if we are to stay in the living present, stay where we always are, if we truly want to stay where we always are and learn what's possible and liberate our hearts, we have to learn to accommodate what's happening here. Because when we, when we go, when we react to the experiences that are present, presenting themselves and we don't notice those reactions, we end up, the pressure of all of that reactivity creates this imaginary world, this virtual world of time, of our imagination, and we literally can spend a a lot of our life in a kind of imaginary world missing the richness and the fullness of and just the juiciness of and the potential ease of being that's available if we can learn to stay where we are. Because each time that we enter into that imaginary world of going, of thinking that we can get to the end of our suffering by going, our body goes into a state of contraction, of fright, of flight, of freeze. It goes, it goes into a state of suspended relaxation, suspended happiness. And when our body is in a state of suspended happiness, our mind is creating the world. It's creating the imaginary world. It's creating the thought of your... It's associating your happiness and well-being. Your happiness and well-being are hostage to something that hasn't, that's not happening right here, that hasn't happened yet. Now, I'm giving you the general... The general Uh, view of this, but every one of us has a little, a list of the things 
we've created that world of what I think I have to have in order to be happy. And the psychology books will tell you what you have to have in order to be happy, where you have to go, what you have to do, what you have to develop, have to become this and do this and do that and get rid of this and get rid of that. Have your needs met and everything. And what's left, what's left uncared for is this very tender instrument, this fathom-long body with its senses and perceptions. If we can stay close to these senses, we can both see the way our mind is causing the world, creating. We can, instead of living out of that sense that there's a, a better place somewhere else, and just notice, oh, there's my mind planning or projecting or expecting or hoping, there's my mind remembering and just enjoy the way our mind magically show, produces these different kinds of mental tendencies and, and all the different reactions that come with that. If we could notice it, great. It's mysterious and fantastic what our minds do. But if we're living in that virtual reality, we're frozen. We're, in, we're waiting. And, but once we wake up, once we wake up to, and that's any moment, that world that we've created in our imagination, when our senses are open, where's the world right now? Where is the world of, the, of everything in the world and where is the world of you right now? When you're simply present. You can also ask, where is your suffering? When you're simply present. There's a, a poet named Hafez that many of you have read. He has this one um, poem called Stop Being So Religious. Maybe some of you have heard it. It says, what do people who are sad have in common? It seems they have all built, it seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. He says, what's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. And I took the risk of writing the second verse. What do people who are fearful and worried and anxious have in common? It seems they've all built a shrine to the future and often go there to do a strange wail and worry. What's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. So how do we stop being so religious like that? Buddha's recommendation, put your mind in your body, your body in your mind. 
Bring your mind and body together. And that's what we did all day today. This process of taking our scattered attention to so innocent and natural. It's just conditioning. It's not personal. It's not your fault. But we take that scattered attention and we bring it together with our, with our body. And slowly begin that process of being able to accommodate the life of the unfolding present. And if you have your eyes open to the present, both internally and externally, you will see for yourself what the Buddha pointed to. That if you are born, if you are, if you are here, you, have, you will have things that are hard to be with. This is what he um, described. This is his diagnosis of our condition. If you're born, you have things that are, you're in a body, you have things that are hard to deal with. And his prescription for dealing with that, and, and that includes what you're experiencing right now, because I can see some heads drifting, and that's okay. But his prescription for how to deal with that is open to it. Don't, don't fight with your, whatever you're experiencing right now. Just make a shift from reacting to it, trying to get away, to noticing, oh, I'm exhausted. This is what exhaustion is like. I'm restless. My body hurts. I'm re- waiting for it to end. I've heard this talk before. Oh, Being aversive is like this. Just feel it. Open to it. And we want to be able to say, yeah, I I opened to the, what's called dukkha, that which is difficult to bear. I'm, I'm walking that pathless path that surrounds me every instant with using the material of whatever it is that's showing up. My, my old life, as Rumi put it, my old life was an endless running from silence. He says, inside this new love, he says, die. He says, your way begins on the other side. Slide out the side and die. And be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. In other words, just die to your experience. He says your old life is an endless running from silence. And he ends it by saying that the speechless full moon comes out now. We go into a spin, into a tangle, in reaction to what we're experiencing through these different senses. And all we're trying to do is, instead of reacting to our experience, we're trying to meet it with mindfulness and clear comprehension. Being able to clearly comprehend, oh, this is what's happening. This is what 
mindful attention is. It means the fullness of attention, clearly comprehending what it is that's happening. In a non-judgmental, non-interfering, non-manipulative, just opening up the doors of perception, saying, okay, what's my experience right now? And I don't have to know anything more than this moment. So then after the Buddha recommended that you prescribe this opening to your experience, he said, you have to be able to say, yeah, I I really, I get this. And then you've, and so you don't have to, you don't have to travel far to navigate the first noble truth. Just take what's happening in this, in this room, in this body right now. It's so close. Because if you can't accommodate this experience, you end up in the second noble truth. What turns the basic unsatisfactoriness, the difficulties, the things that are hard to bear, the unreliability of things, the changing nature of things, the things that we find when we're present, that things slip through our fingers, or we don't always get what we want, we don't want what we get, we wish things were other than they are, what turns, what turns all of these conditions into chronic mental suffering is the reactions that we have to how it is. And the chronic reaction that we have is that we mostly um, want things to be other than the way they are. And that expresses itself as a kind of as a, a chronic state of, of what the Buddha called tanha or craving. Translated, the word tanha is translated as unslakable thirst. This kind of un, insatiable desire to have things be different. That then hardens into a kind of addictive tendency to constantly go. To think that we can reach the end of the end of our stress by going. And we go into flights of fantasy, flights of memory. And, uh, and this just, it puts us on a, on a wheel of endlessly waiting for that, that uh, the end of the rainbow and it never arrives because time and freedom is always now. This is uh, expressed very humorously, and to me it's humorous, in this story about a farmer who went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming and how droughts and monsoons made his life really difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife and how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. And likewise, his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. And when he was finished, he asked the Buddha how he could help him with his troubles. And the Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And the farmer says, what do you mean? You're supposed to be a great teacher. And the Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. 
so we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly, then what's the good of all your teaching? And the Buddha replied, my teaching can't help you with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. This this chronic search has has become part of our our, our mental conditioning. And it's uh, expressed in in some of the Japanese Zen poetry, the poet Ryokan, who I quoted last night, where he said, Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. In this one, Ryokan said, Truly, I love this life of seclusion. Then why do I pine for a visit from friends? And why, when they do come, why is it all I can think about is how to get away? Back into the woods, back to my life of seclusion. (laughs) So, and the teacher, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, says, as long as we believe we need things or need things to be different to be happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Our mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. In this way, pleasure, that's what we're seeking a lot, is a distraction for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there's nothing wrong with me or this moment. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of practice is to reach this point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. That made me think of Alan Watts. I shared this with one of the groups today, where Alan Watts said, he says, we, when we make music, we don't do it in order to reach the end of the composition. If that were the purpose of music, then the, the fastest players would be the best. And when we dance, we don't do it in order to arrive at a particular place on the floor as in taking a journey. When we play music, the music itself is the point, and when we dance, dancing itself is the point. And the same is true in our meditation practice. That the, the purpose of our practice, the point of it, is always arrived at in the present moment. He goes on to say the point is to learn, which is really what we're doing, learn to dig. He used beat language from the beat generation to dig the present, to groove with the eternal now, to see that the place where it's at, they used to use that as pleasant, where it's at, the place where it's at is simply here and now. So it's actually a serious matter, though, to be blocked in our mind by confusion. As the founder of Mahayana Buddhism, some consider the founder of Mahayana Buddhism, Nagarjuna, 
put it, blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter a situation where personality unfolds and the world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness, such as attention, eye, color and shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience that I crave to have and to avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and myself. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free, to be no one. To be someone is to be a self-conscious, to be self-conscious, impulsive thinking, feeling body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive, but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. Anguish will end. So the Buddha's whole passion and compassion was to help us get off of this wheel of endlessly chasing our tail, endlessly waiting for that future that never arrives, endlessly getting caught in that state of suspended happiness, and then getting momentary hits of, of pleasure, and then being confused and then chasing again and again. Or he said, uh, or the same, the poet Hafez says, he says, need to learn to recognize these counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days on end like a broken man behind a farting camel. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So all of this going... The second noble truth is craving for experience, craving to get rid of things, craving for what the Buddha called becoming, always becoming. The Dalai Lama commented on this when he was asked what surprised him most about humanity. He answered, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. Or as more modern expression of our consumer culture, the teacher Sogyal Rinpoche writes, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of this cycle of samsara. Samsara means this endless wandering. And it's barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning that endlessly speaks of making people happy, 
but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern society feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction in and around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, ambitions, which promise happiness, but lead only to more dissatisfaction and misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water, designed to make us thirstier. Makes you happy, huh? <laughs> For some reason, that always makes me happy when I read Because it's just so spot on. And... We don't need to then adopt a view and then get depressed about it, but we try to see it for what it is and keep, turn it into our love of being right where we are instead of getting depressed about how crazy the world is and then spending all day thinking about our consumer world and how terrible it is. That's never made anybody happy either. So fortunately, the Buddha didn't, uh, didn't stop with the fact that our lives have in, inevitable challenges and difficulties. First truth. The second truth that what turns those essential difficulties into, into compounded mental suffering is our constant desire to have it be different than the way it is. And the prescription for dealing with that tendency of mind to want things to be other is to, is to learn to let go. Learn to relax this tight fist of grasping. Don't hold on so tight. And you see that if you can release that, your fist a little bit, that there's open space that's inviting, that's right here, that's, you can find comfort right in the middle of it all. So one wonderful teacher named Ajahn Chah is very much part of the lineage of Spirit Rock. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go, lets things be. He says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, have complete peace and freedom. So the prescription is to practice moment to moment. Letting, letting go, open, letting go into what it is that's here. Again, it's not some kind of act of doing something. It's simply allowing. It's receiving. And you may think, oh, if I just let go, does that mean I'm going to turn into a useless blob who doesn't care about the world? Of course not. When we let go, when our mind clears from the narrow grip of our, our fixations, we actually can see. We can see clearly. And as I see clearly right now, you, I, I care about you. And I'm going to do whatever I can to, to support you. And just what you'll do when you're, if you're present enough in your life, if you're absent-minded, thinking about the past that's gone and the future that hasn't been born, 
how can you really take care of this world? How can, you, how can your heart even respond? So this letting go is not passive at all. It creates, it is literally the ground of, of compassion and, and so much caring. But we have to experiment with that. And literally every moment that we're practicing mindfulness, we're practicing letting go. Little drops in the bucket. The mindfulness is the opposite of grasping. It says, it's okay that you're here. It says, I'm not going to push you away and I'm not going to try to hold on. I'm just going to try to see clearly. And it doesn't matter what's showing up. Equal opportunity. Mindfulness doesn't care. Mindfulness isn't trying to arrange the furniture in a special way. It's just trying to see what's here right now. And if we let go, moment by moment, the, the Buddha at least shared the good news that there is within this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense, there is the end of the world. We reach the end of the world. We, and the end of the world can be seen as the, as the end of, of that chronic tendency to keep making imaginary worlds and or believing that the imaginary worlds that we make uh, are real and that we find the what we're that what we're looking for as mark said it this morning that the very what we're looking for is what's looking and once we find what we're looking for we relax Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. As the, in the words of the Buddha, there is an end of this stress, this mental stress that we compound our life experience with. This reactivity that we're so caught up in moment by moment, day by day. There's an end to it. And his prescription for for this diagnosis that there's an end is to realize it, is to experience it. As he put it, there's a field of experience beyond this entire field of matter, this entire field of mind, this is your innermost nature, that is neither this world nor another world, nor both, neither moon nor sun, this I call neither arising nor passing away nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth. It is without support, without development, without foundation. It is the end of suffering. Or as I think very humorously, the Advaita saint uh, Ramana Maharshi put it, he says, there's no special effort necessary to realize this freedom. All efforts are for eliminating what obscures the truth. A lady wearing a necklace around her neck, she forgets it, imagines it to be lost and impulsively looks for it here, there, everywhere. Not finding it, she asks her friends if they found it anywhere. Until one kind friend points to her neck and tells her to feel the necklace around her neck. 
The seeker does so and feels happy that the necklace is found. Again, when she meets other friends, they ask her if her lost necklace was found. She says yes to them as if it were lost and later recovered. Her happiness at rediscovering it around her neck is the same as if some lost property was recovered. In fact, she never lost it nor recovered it. And yet she was once miserable and now she's happy. So is also the realization of freedom. So because I've run out of time... I, um, I will end here, just to give a little sneak preview. The Buddha didn't stop with the fact that, uh, that there is an end of suffering, mental suffering. Uh, he also described the path that you are all treading moment by moment, using your mind and body, this fathom long body. There's that path that Mark spoke about last night as having... F- three elements, the element of, of mind training, of bhavana, uh, the element of, of the cultivation of wisdom and the cultivation of harmlessness. All the elements that we are training here, uh, if, if followed, if, if, um, if cared for moment by moment, will um, fulfill that same desire for you that one desire that no other desire can fulfill, the desire to, to be free, to be unbound. So from Gendon Rinpoche, long, often read passage from a Tibetan teacher called Free and Easy, says happiness. You can interchange freedom or ease. Cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. So don't strain yourself. There's nothing that you need to do about what's presenting itself, nor is there anything that needs to be undone. Whatever momentarily arises in your body or your mind has little reality whatsoever. It's ephemeral. Why identify with it and become attached to it? pass judgment upon it and ourselves. I know there was a lot of judgment arising in the minds today, and that's something that's very common at the beginning of practice. So he's inviting you to soften that that judgment. Try to meet your experience with kindness, openness. So far better to simply allow the process to happen, unfold on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without trying to change or manipulate anything. And notice how everything arises and vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, It's always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. 
They're like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this openness, this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. Nothing to do about what's presenting itself, nothing to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Marvelous, emaho, everything unfolds organically by itself. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. No need to change postures if you don't want. May all beings open to the difficulties that present themselves. May all beings let go of the chronic tendency to want things to be other than the way they are. May all beings realize the freedom of letting go, the sacred happiness that's without sorrow available to us here and now. And may all beings develop the great heart of equanimity and non-reactiveness and cultivate the path of awakening. May all beings be free. Thank you for your long enduring attention. I know how difficult it is on the first night to sustain attention for a talk, and so I really appreciate you staying with it. And we now have about 20 minutes or so for walking practice and get some fresh. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.